0: We are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Please turn to Ephesians 4 and stand as we read the Word of God. (laughs) Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 21. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord... "...that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness." But ye have not so learned Christ, if so, be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Dear Father, this is um, uh, a beautiful passage. This is a needed passage for us. Uh, I pray that you will uh, send your spirit to work with the word and, and change us and uh, please you in our Hearing this and our understanding it and in our doing it today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Well, today's message is about living in the context of culture. Do you ever wonder how different are we to be from the world? And in what ways are we called to be different? Well, the book of Ephesians can help us answer that question. Now we know from the Bible that there is nothing new under the sun. And that means that there's nothing new fundamentally under the sun. And just as the Ephesians were having to make Decisions and and live their life in a different way The worldview of the gentiles at that time of the church had developed into an advanced stage And it's it's the culture that is still with us in the world today You've heard the term the middle ages or the dark ages. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the humanists humanist uh, philosophers and Historians who believe that mankind was doing pretty good in ancient Greece And then we had an oppressive and simplistic, you know, oppressive time under Christianity. Uh, And then we had the the Renaissance or the rebirth. Or, you know, there was a rediscovery of, of the classics and of philosophy. And this was a time when Europe started turning away from Christianity and back to the ideas that Paul was preaching against here in Ephesians 4 in our passage today. So as we go through this, a very tangible element, something for us to consider is how we educate ourselves and how we educate our children. So the title of the sermon today is the antithetical education of children. The antithetical education of children It's a very telling thing and a very appropriate thing that our education is much different than that of the world. Now, would we want the education of the world to be closer to our teaching? Yes, we would, but not without Christ. Remember what we learned back in chapter 3, that without Christ, Gentiles are alienated from the promises of God and without hope in the world. And that is no way to live, even if we're doing some of the things externally the same. Christ is needed. We'll talk more about that concept later. But I mentioned children, the education of children. And why did I just focus on the antithetical education of children? Um, Isn't the thinking of adults important as, as well? Yes. But we live in family covenants. And since we educate at home, what you think is what your children are taught. This is because your household is a covenant household, under the Bible. Back in uh, Exodus, when the child asked his daddy, uh, what do you mean by this service? Speaking of the Passover. Really, he was asking, what do we mean? Because when, when the father says this is what it means, then that's the understanding of the family. It's a family covenant. So as God preaches to us today, we should consider some things. Where do we pull from when we get our knowledge. What is the construct under which we educate? What is the educational system based on? How did it start? Is it covenantal or not? What is the goal of our education? I'll wind up at the end of this uh, seeing that there is no hope without Christ. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not that our, our education is, needs to be changed by Christ, but it needs to be built by Christ. But if it is, there is great hope it is it is gloriously antithetical to the world. so that's where we're going. let's get into our passage first, a couple of uh, verses here, verses seventeen and eighteen. this I say therefore, in testify in the Lord that ye walk that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, prior to these verses, like what we preached on last time, Paul has been teaching us how to relate to each other as a church. Uh, With each other, we need to strive for unity. But with the world, we stay on the track of antithesis. And the word antithesis, by the way, means direct opposite okay so the so so the lot so the philosophy the life of the world we are in a direct opposite we're different now that doesn't mean however we're different for the sake of being different one preacher said that we don't walk on our hands just because everybody else walks on their feet that's not the idea It's rather determined by christ Well, Paul says this here in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Now, the word testify is translated from from the Greek word martyromai, from which we get the word, you can probably hear it, martyr. It it means a powerful witness. It has a tone of gravity, and it basically means I declare by the Lord's authority. And he goes on, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darken. So Paul says, Gentiles, you can't walk like Gentiles. Now, if we said that to the world today, they would laugh. If Paul said this, they would laugh at him. How arrogant of you, Paul. You can't tell people to not be themselves. You got to let you be you, right? Well, not according to God. And Paul, Paul, Paul says, no, you can't walk like yourselves anymore. Can't be, you can't let you be you, all right? Now, there are two concepts here in these verses, 17 and 18. And uh, the concepts are presented together. And this is important for the understanding of the sermon overall. The two concepts are walking and thinking. Now, walking means living. What do, we, what do we do with our lives? And then there's thinking, and these are linked together. There's a causality here. You could say that the walk is because of the thought. The walk is because of the thought. And we're going to talk more about that that later. Now, when you hear the word Gentile in Ephesians, you need to think of the word Greek. They are interchangeable. The Greek philosophy was the driving philosophy uh, and the culture of the Gentile world then. And it still is today, basically, because uh, that philosophy has institutionalized humanism and uh, that was the goal of Plato's Republic, so it's still today. it's still here today. Now the t- the term Gentile is indeed broader than Greek, but in this context, it's the Greek culture that they have to do an about face on. So when you're uh, Gentile, think Greek. Now to help us see this more clearly, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians one. Here we're going to see that uh, Greek thinking is antithetical to Christian thinking, and that Greek living is non-covenantal. Okay, two things. Now we're going to read verses 17 through 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent." I'm just paused here for just a second. That that phrase right there is from Isaiah chapter 29, and Isaiah 29 is talking about the new covenant. Uh, Jesus quoted the verses uh, just prior to this in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the New Covenant, and he's saying, in the New Covenant, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Okay? So just keep keep this in mind that this is what God says he's going to do. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Let's do one more verse. But unto them that are called both Jews Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I want you to see something from this passage. And I want you to see that there are three groups of people in the world according to God. There, There are Jews, there are Greeks, and there are Christians. First, the Jews. The Jews require a sign. They They required, they wanted a sign. Now, signs from God are good. We have signs. We're going to have some of them today here in the sacraments. But uh, he he gave them to us. It's not our place to say, God, I I want you to give me a sign now. That's not the way God works. So the Jews require a sign. The, The Greeks, second the Greeks, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Notice they don't get wisdom like the Proverbs says to do. They, they seek after it. And uh, Proverbs is basically telling us you don't have to have a big project to develop wisdom. You just have to get it. It's readily available. It's all packaged up. It's sitting on this shelf to be, to be received in the Word of God. The Greeks, on the other hand, see wisdom as a never-ending project something you are always pursuing. And this is with us today. Let me give you an example. Uh, If you ever want to get a PhD, then there's one thing that's going to be required all around the world. Every, well, everyone that I've seen, every school, every PhD committee is going to require this for your dissertation. You need to present something new. It has to be something new. And uh, it's at least got to be a new twist uh, and, and why is that? Well, it's to contribute, contribute to the body of knowledge in the world. And this is a very Greek thinking. It's, and it's good evidence that, are, that the PhDs in our universities are, are categorically uh, Greek in their never-ending pursuit of knowledge. Now, the Christian is not opposed to discovery. And not opposed to putting things together in new ways. We are, to, we are to advance. But we see a beginning and an end to knowledge. And that knowledge is in Jesus Christ. Now You may be w- wondering, how does that actually flesh out in the real world? We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So, <clears throat> um, we have, we got two groups. We have the, uh, the Jews and we have the Greeks. And there's a third group, Christians. Christians. Now, what do we do regarding wisdom? We preach Christ crucified. And uh, this, this preaching is not received, as we see here, it's, it's received as foolishness. It's not received with any respect of the world. It wasn't then, and it's still not today. So God says the world is divided up into three, three groups, Jews, Greeks, and Christians. And you say, okay, in what way are they divided? Well, they're divided in two ways. The first thing that we've seen is how they get knowledge, their epistemology. The Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Text is translation. The Jews say, I'm looking for you to prove it to me. The Greeks say, we're working on it. And the Christian says, Jesus already did it, already did it. And they also say that Christ is the truth, but we'll talk about that later. I'm looking for you to prove it to me. We're working on it. Jesus already did it. So they're divided on how they get their knowledge. And I, see, I think you can see that this is worlds apart. Now, the other division between these three groups is more implicit. You've you got to kind of zoom out a bit. And the other division is a covenantal division. They say if you want to understand unrighteousness, follow the money trail. But we say if you want to understand unrighteousness, follow the covenantal trail. So what is the covenant? And on, on the covenantal trail, we see three different paths for the Jews, the Greeks, and the Christians. For the Jews, they are covenant breakers. They broke the covenant. The Greeks are covenant avoiders. They don't even have a covenant. And the Christians, true Christians, are covenant keepers. True Christians, uh, true Christian nations are covenant keepers, so why is that important? Why, why are we talking about the covenant? Well, we believe that the pure word, uh, the pure truth on the Bible comes by way of union through through Christ to God. Without this covenantal union, we can 't even understand the situation that we 're in. Calvin said that our, our knowledge is primarily uh, what we know about God, and what we know about ourselves. But without a supernatural revelation that comes by way of covenant, you can't have truth. Now, a non-believer may have some isolated facts correct, but he won't know why it's that way, and he won't be able to explain why it's there or what the purpose is. Only the Christian and only by covenant can truth be understood. And we need to understand the one and the many, and Jesus is the one. We'll talk more about the the way uh, Jesus is the truth later. So the covenant is required for truth. And for us to understand the way that God set things in place, we need need supernatural revelation. And supernatural revelation only comes by way of covenant. And this leads us to talk about um, public schools because public schools do not have this covenant. Uh, So let's talk about that. The first thing I want to say is that there are good people in public schools. Uh, I was blessed by good people in public schools. Many are doing the best that they can. They're serving. They care about their students, and they want them to be successful. But they probably do not know, and, and even the Christian public school teachers probably do not know, that without a covenant, there is no supernatural revelation. And without supernatural revelation to base things on, there is no hope of an education of truth now some of us say and, and i and i've said it that we wish that public schools were what they used to be uh when we were growing up for for example in, in my school uh we prayed before lunchtime um every time somebody else got got to pray we would line up and we and, and, and we'd pray now there was evolutionary stuff in the textbooks but it wasn't looked at as an unquestionable fact uh, the schools were more moral. Um, now, the books were pretty bad. I go back and I look at some of those books and I say, oh, wow, that's, that's probably not a good idea to read that. Um, but today it's much worse. There's all kinds of bad stuff going on in, in public schools. So bad I, I don't even want to discuss it. But all that bad stuff is not the worst thing about public schools. All that bad stuff is not the worst thing. What is the worst thing about public schools? It's not evolution. It's not the restriction against prayer or the wicked sexual stuff. It's, it's not wokeism. None of these are the worst thing about public schools. The worst thing about public schools is that it's based on a very bad doctrine. It's based upon the doctrine that you can have a good education without Christ and without the Bible. That was and is its foundation. And that idea is completely antithetical to what God said. In fact, any educational system that, that formally and practically refuses to start with God's wor- word is idolatrous by definition. It's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. There was a bill that was uh, just passed in Iowa that Iowa schools ha- have to stop teaching wokeism. Uh, I, I read it. Now, is that a good thing? Yes. Yes. At least in the short term, it's it's a good indicator that that the Lord is working on the conscience of our, our legislators. They're realizing this is bad. But there's also a danger of a good moral public school system, and the danger is this: that in that system, that people begin to think that we can be righteous without God. Now, not all people believe that, but it will be and has been indirectly taught over the long haul so that it develops into something that has been historically categorized as pietism. Pietism. Okay, now, you need to understand there's a good pietism and a bad pietism. The good pietism is that we're going to strive for holiness, but we're going to strive for holiness by the grace of God. That's good. That's what The Bible says a lot about that, doesn't it? Um, but th- there's, a, there's a bad p- pietism um, that means that you pursue righteousness without acknowledging God from soup to nuts, that you're pursuing righteousness outside of a con- covenantal construct. And this is called pietism. And uh, I, I saw in Sermon Audio, uh, my friend uh, Matt Truella was featured on that. He's got a sermon titled, uh, The Bane of Pietism. And I haven't listened to it, but I can guarantee you it's good because I've listened to other things from him on this on this topic. And it really will help you understand that external moralism can, over the long term, Uh, result in uh, a depraved society. A public school, no matter how moral, is not what God wants. So the public schools have some good people, but as a system, it's built upon a false doctrine, and no amount of improvement is going to remove that faulty doctrine. It's the bedrock. There's no fixing it. Okay? So that's public schools. What about Christian schools? Christian schools. Well, Christian schools are not based on this false doctrine, at least not in their pure form. Christian schools that I have seen assert that the Bible is the starting point. They, they affirm what we see in John seventeen seventeen. Remember that verse? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. They affirm that, at least the ones that I've seen. And, and, and they agree that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, some stay more true to this than others. So, praise the Lord, Christian schools do not have this idolatry. But Christian schools um, do have a fundamental flaw, and it's one that's intrinsic, and it's this, Christian schools do not work primarily from the construct of a family covenant. They don't work primarily from the construct of a family covenant. And the biblical examples and exhortations that we see in the Bible on training of children are almost all parents, overwhelmingly. There is a a small role that the church has. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about this concept of a a school, and specifically a Christian school, when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, because that's going to talk about the family covenant and education. So tune in for that. I hope the Lord will, will help us understand it. Okay, so that's uh, two, different, two different categories and two different issues, government schools and Christian schools. One, by the way, is not allowed by the, by the Scripture, but Christian schools, I think, are allowed by the Scripture. I just don't think they're best. Okay, I think you can see how the education of our children is very antithetical to the world. And it it flows from this old this idea of a difference developed in the Gentiles, and let's see how that difference came about. So let's turn back to Ephesians chapter four, back to Ephesians four, and uh, we'll look at uh, verses eighteen and nineteen. Yeah, eighteen and nineteen having the understanding darkened to being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness. And what is lasciviousness, by the way? Lasciviousness is, um, is sexual immorality that is in your face. It's, it's a prideful, outward sexual immorality that tries to convince others to also be sexually immoral with you. That's what lasciviousness is. To work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, these verses show something about how the Gentiles, in historical times that it was written, got to where they are. There is a condition being alienated from the life of God. And uh, there's some causes listed here. The causes were their understanding was darkness. They had ignorance in them. And they had blind hearts, hearts that could not take in the things of God. This is consequential for us, and I think for everyone in the world. It is telling us why the worldly system and has a direct application to an education system, they are in the position they are in. If your understanding is darkened, separated only only natural, not supernatural. If your worldview is ignorant to the revelation of God, if your heart is, is proud and not interested in the Bible, then what? There's no hope. This is what's going to happen. Um, it's like your feet are set in concrete. You're, you're over here and God's over there. And the worst part is that you're set in concrete away from God and you can't even see him. You don't even know that he's there. Um, Back in the in the Air Force and in, in planning, we would do uh, we do strike planning and uh, you were concerned about unknowns. You, there's no per- perfect intelligence, right? And so you had unknowns. And the first category was a known unknown. OK, so in other words, you know that there is a SAM, a surface to air missile battery somewhere, but you don't know ex- 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 exactly where it. Where it is, or maybe you know where it is, but you don't know if it's if it's capable. A known unknown is not that bad, because what do you do? You just fly around it. Okay. Um, what's worse is the unknown unknown. The unknown unknown is that is that there are things that we don't know, and we don't even know what category those things are in. Now that's that's really uh, it's it's hard because you can't plan for that. You can't do anything about it. There's actually a third condition. And, I, and I, I I don't know if this is uh, codified in doctrine. I haven't seen it in, in in doctrine. But I submit to you that there's a third position. And that's the unknown, unknown, unknown. Okay? <laughs> unknown cubed. Here's the unknown cubed. Oh. Well, let me back up. So so the known unknown is that there's a SAM battery. Uh, we don't know if it's capable. The unknown unknown is there. We don't know. We don't know w- where the SAM batteries are. We don't know whether Capable we that we got so many we've got unknown unknowns the unknown, unknown unknown is somebody that doesn 't even know that there's a sand battery at all never' even heard of it <laughs> he's not even interested whistling Dixie walking down the road when he's surrounded by union soldiers so anyway that 's what it can be like. It can be like an unknown, unknown, unknown you have un, you 've got unknowns, but those are unknown, and you don 't even know that you don't know that you don 't know. not a good place, okay, all right. <clears throat> Um, so verse 19 shows us where this is going. Lasciviousness. And certainly the Greeks had that. They were really good at lasciviousness. And we're getting good at it too. Um, They're flaunting in parades and uncleanness has worked and there's, there's greediness in our land. Okay, so as we have seen, the thinking of the Gentiles, the Greeks have led to unrighteousness. Now for application to us, we should consider if God is happy with Greek education for our children, okay, also known as classical education, and for us particularly, we should consider whether classical Christian education is pleasing to the Lord. Um, and and this, well, I'm saying classical Christian education because it's classical, uh, has the construct, has some of the material, but it's been redone from a Christian perspective. Now, today I just want to give a brief survey of this, but. I hope it's enough to 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 if if you haven't thought of these things, I hope that it will be helpful as you work through them, pray through them and seek seek the word. I hope it'll be helpful you in, in discerning the the Lord's will, because this is a very important matter generationally to us. Now, I want to say from the outset that classical Christian education is allowed in the Bible, just like. Christian schools it may not be the wisest but it is allowed because it it recognizes and uses the Bible as the ultimate authority so it's not idolatrous okay like like the the other thing we said so it's allowed it's uh I think it I think it is allowed I I don't think it's a sin but I don't think it's the wisest and I'll I'll talk about that I've studied it a lot I've read the foundational book supporting classical Christian education. And there may be some things that I have not uncovered yet, but I've seen enough uh, to be able to apply our passage today to the question of classical Christian education. Actually, Miriam and I started off our homeschooling with classical education. And uh, overall, it was pretty good. Uh, I read a book titled Teaching the Trivium, by Henry Blue Dorn, He lives in uh, Illinois, and I think he may have moved to Iowa, actually. It's a very good book on homeschooling. And the perspective that that book gives is a faithful one. If you're going to do the Trivium, then I guess I would recommend this, even though I don't recommend the Trivium. So let me give you some quotes from that book. And this is why it's good. He says this, Blue Dorn writes, Only through the transformation of the family can a society be restructured to agree with Christian order and the rule of law? Another one. Everything can be taught from a beginning place in the word of God. The scriptures must be the foundation of all studies. That's good. And he, uh, he also commented on the passage that we just read earlier in First Corinthians. The one talking about how the Greeks were wrong. The, the, the people who came up with classical education. Um, so Henry, Henry Bluedorn was talking about First Corinthians and the Greeks, <clears throat> and he says this, their agent was the agent that caused, sorry, their education was the agent that caused their ignorance because they were educated without reference to God. And uh, that's what we've been seeing. That's what we've been saying. So here's a promoter of a classical Christian education program that's uh, pointing out the same things that so far I've pointed out this morning. Um, now, the reason that I, I want to bring up Henry Bluedorn is that there are de- there's degrees of this. Right. How much Greek is brought into classical education, how much of the? It's really hard to, to nail that down. Blue Dorn, for example, believes that the pagans stole the trivium from God's people. You know what the trivium is? Grammar, logic, rhetoric. Learn the facts, put the facts together, make an argument. OK? Now, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's pretty evident that that is a way to learn um, in, in nature. I mean, that's, that's what we did when we were teaching people how to fly. Um, just about every education system that I've known follows that way. So anyway, he, Bluedorn says he's just stealing it back from the pagans. Um, so there's some good writing on that, some things that I agree with. Um, also, even though I don't agree with classical Christian education, I do recommend men who practice classical Christian education. George Grant, for example. I have benefited greatly from his history and from his understanding of an earthly, geographical, covenantal Christianity. Steve Wilkins, big on classical education. He, he's got some flaws, but his history, American history, is really good. That's what we have used. Also, there are some things that I agree with classical education. Oftentimes, classical education is opposed to something called OBE. You familiar with that? Outcome-based education. Um, this type of education is basically a, a very structured, very robot. This is the standardized testing and all that kind of stuff. It, it's it's closer to producing robots than education in my mind. Uh, it's uh, But classical education in general desires to produce a love of learning and self-learners. And I agree with that. Um Another thing I agree with, classical Christian education is good at cultural engagement. It rightly recognizes that philosophy matters a lot. It it has an effect on on our lives. And lastly, there's more, but I'll just say this, that I do believe that learning languages is good for the mind. It helps us to understand the Bible, uh, particularly Greek and Hebrew. My boys have have, uh, taken Greek. Uh, There's more that I I, I agree on, but I just wanted you to see the perspective that I'm coming from. Okay, so why do I not recommend classical Christian education? Or a better question would be, in what ways do I see the Bible presenting a better path? And again, this will be brief. We're not going to support a lot of this stuff, but I want to present it to you. Overall, I believe the Hebraic education system, the Hebraic education system as opposed to the Greek education system. And, and I would say the Hebraic system is, is basically taking the covenant breakers of the Jews and bringing in covenant keepers of the Christians, but using their methodology. And the methodology is more organic. It's more family-based. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So overall, I believe the Hebraic education system more closely follows the Bible in form. Second, it allows for an apologetic, most consistent with the Bible. Third, it supports the family covenant and helps keep families close over the long term. Number four, it helps us stay humble. Number five, it uh, keeps us from loving the wisdom of the world. Uh, Number six, it... uh, it helps us stay clear of Roman Catholicism over the long haul. And another one could be added, and I briefly mentioned it, that that I, that verse in Isaiah uh, 29 talks about destroying the wisdom of the wise. That's brought forth in the very discussion of Greek philosophy in one Corinthians chapter one. So what am I saying? That there may be an eschatological element to this and that God is wanting to get rid of the wisdom of the Greeks in the new covenant. I believe that's the case. But anyway, I do want to fill these out a little bit more. So number one, I said that Hebraic education more closely follows the form of education that we see in the Bible. Simplest illustration, Deuteronomy 6-7. Yep. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou... Rises up. Now, this verse can be used for classical Christian homeschooling, too, and it should be used for that. But the, the verse prior to this in Deuteronomy talks about learning to love the Lord. And in my experience with classical education, learning classical Christian education, learning to love the Lord was there, but it was less organic. And it was perhaps because oftentimes there's just so much data to consume in the early stages of grammar. There's much more work to do in that. Um, so that's the first thing. And more clo- closely follows the form of education that we see in the Bible. Second, it allows for an apologetic most consistent with the Bible. First Corinthians, classic text in the Bible that shows that God is really not that interested in developed skills of rhetoric. Okay? In fact, our apologetic is so... The one that Paul is saying is so against rhetoric that it's foolishness to the Greeks. Now, it could be, as Henley Blue Dorn asserts, that the Greeks were foolish not because of their construct of learning, but because they had failed to see Christ. That could be the case. Um, but when we zoom out and we look at the overall apologetic of Paul, you're going to see that by and large he's preaching Christ. It's simple. It's not a lot of argument. There is perhaps one exception to this, and that's in Acts 17. Acts 17, when, when Paul is in Athens and he's debating with the Epicureans and the Stoics. When he's debating the Epicureans and the Stoics, then he used some of their uh, ways of thinking. He, this, some of the things that Paul said was directly refuting what the Epicureans believed and what the Stoics believed. And I say that's good. Again, Henry Blue Dorn said that he he used rhetoric even though Paul was not trained in rhetoric. And so the point the point I take is that rhetoric is probably good. It just should not be elevated to the level that it can be elevated um, if that is the end of our goal. Data, logic, argument. Okay? Um, now here's, here's the way that you'll see it in classical Christian education. Sometimes they'll, they'll say this, how can you expect to engage the culture? If you do not understand where they are coming from philosophically. Okay. Now that is a bad preposition or proposition. You do not have to understand the culture, the philosophy in order to engage them. You only need to understand the scripture. Is it wise to do that? Yes, maybe sometime. But I have seen it presented in a very ultimate, ultimate term. How can you expect to engage the culture if you do not, do not understand where they are coming from philosophically? I'll give you an example. One video that I watched was a man who said that we always train all of our people um, to read uh, Origin of the Species, and he said, "How can you expect to debate somebody on the or, on evolution if you haven't read Origin of the Species?" Brothers and sisters, you can debate. You can debate somebody on that. In fact, it may be better at times to just simply say, "The word said it." It depends. The answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, so there's flexibility here, but. Um, but, uh, first 1 Corinthians one says this, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So that was the second one. Third one, he break education, supports the family and keeps the family close. Whereas classical education, at least in its non-Christian pure form is more aimed at filling the mind with information. Solomon's wisdom is more of simplicity. You see that in Proverbs. And it's and it is relational father to son obeying the word. You can hear Solomon's heart to not to his students, to his son. Now, this doesn't mean, once again, you can't bring this into classical education. And um, I'm just saying that the beginning, the foundations of classical education did not do that. And so it have to be redone. Um, also, classical education is more school based. And this is growing a lot. Uh, and I'll, again, I'll save, that, I'll save that discussion until we get to Ephesians chapter 6. Number four, Hebraic education helps us keep humble. The goal, once again, of a purely classical education, uh, you know, so not, not necessarily Christian, is to be good at rhetoric. Um, now, it's doing it for the glory of God. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with being able to make your point. Jesus did this. But the Christian is happy if he didn't win an argument because it's up to God to do the convincing. Number five, Hebraic education keeps us from loving the wisdom of the world. If you've read Plato and Aristotle, as as I have, I got to tell you, it's pretty enticing. They make you think. And there are some helpful things in there, particularly on logic. But even if there are some good things in there, remember that the Ephesians had their minds darkened by Greek wisdom over generations. And that's the concern. It couldn't cause them to walk in unrighteous ways. Number six, Hebraic education helps us steer clear of Roman Catholicism. One thing that you will notice is that typically Christian education folks are more accommodating to Roman Catholics. I saw a good friend of mine go from the OPC, very conservative, to Anglican, to Roman Catholic, right before my eyes, in about eight months. And uh, I was really surprised that his wife supported him in this. Well, they were really deep into classical education. That's only one point, but I've, I've seen it multiple times. And there's a reason for it, and there's a couple reasons. But the first one, and I had a man tell me this at, at, at dinner, Who's, a, who's an author that supports classical education? He says, All truth is God's truth. That's, that's one of the things that uh, you will hear said. All truth is God's truth. Now, what does that mean? What's the implication behind it? Well, basically, it's saying the things that you discover in nature, in natural revelation, are truth. That is true. But read, read Pastor Kaiser's booklet, The Flaw of Natural Law, a very good booklet that shows you. That that's not a good way to go down and base a lot of stuff on. All right? So that's, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. So, so why do I bring that up? That um, classical education elevates natural epistemology higher than we have it. And because of that, it's more linked to Roman Catholic theology. because Aristotle is the one that brought that in, and Thomas Aquinas brought in Aristotle to the Roman Catholic. And so it starts to make a little bit more sense to somebody who's been educated in Aristotle. That's just a, that's just a warning. But again, we're talking about generationally. So Hebraic education helps us cle- stay clear of Roman Catholicism. So those are six reasons. Now, you may have noticed that I did not mention Greek mythology. And I think that Greek mythology is not that important because you can find it and you can sort it out. Um, there's a good booklet by another good booklet by Pastor Kaiser called The Ruins of Athens. And it, it shows in there that actually the philosophers were not that interested in the gods. Um, they they didn't really pay attention to them. There were lots of gods around, but they didn't pay attention to them. Um, and that actually co- inadvertently caused a problem. Now, how would that cause a problem? Well, it caused a problem that that in that in the Greek mindset, it generated more of a sacred-secular divide. And that was passed on. So it's actually kind of a bad thing that they weren't following gods in a way because uh, they just said that doesn't matter. Religious things don't matter. So, so the gods, the, 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 the mythology is not that important, I don't think. You can sort that out. So let me simplify this, though, a little bit. I think we can ask three questions. What is the foundation of our education? Is it purely started in the fear of God? Or is it based upon a historical construct of learning? What is the method of our education? Can we say that the priority of heart, love, that devotion to God of character is the primary method, the organic family of our education? And third, what is the goal of our education? Is it the glory of God? Or is it winning the debate and influencing the culture by doing things like understanding the the enemy's worldview better than they do? Now, I'm not saying that these things, these negative things, that people that adhere to classical Christian education do that. I'm saying these are questions that we should all be asking. Okay, so three questions. What's the foundation of your education system? What's the method of the education system? And what's what's the goal? So my exhortation is to see what what look at that and see what is closest to the Bible. And uh, classical Christian looks very it's very attractive to me. I like the structure, I like I love the the, the learning all, um, but uh, I don't think it's wisest for the reason that that w- that we talked about. I think the Bible is sufficient for the education. You can start from that and the Hebraic example and develop a very good educational system. So. We're going to end this um, with the last two verses, 20 and 21. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So Paul doesn't leave us hanging here with all these problems of learning. No, he says you can learn Christ. There's a joke. uh, You've heard the joke. The answer to every Sunday school question is what? Jesus, right? Well, actually, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good theology. The answer to every question is Jesus. It's very solid theologically. Now, remember that the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, the other category is looking to Christ. And we can think of... So I, I said I was going to get back to this idea of the truth is in Christ. Think about these kind of verses when you think the truth is in Christ. Okay. Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. Christ is what we are taught. He is the teacher. He's the truth behind what is taught. And those three things pretty much get it from every angle. There, there's nothing that's going to be outside of the scope of Jesus. And he can be learned. He learned. We, we can learn Christ and the truth is in Jesus. Now, does this mean that our only discussion is on like Jesus, who he was, what he did? Is it only the Gospels? No. No. The whole Bible is Christ's wisdom. Job 28, 28. We're working on this in our family. And unto man, he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Learning Jesus is a type of fearing the Lord because he's Lord of all. And he's the only way that we're not bound for hell. And we should hang on every single word that he says. And this is every single word that he says. And it can be applied to everything. Two people can understand physics, but one has learned Christ and physics and the other has not. Both get the same answer on the test. How can this be? Well, Christ was the one who who let them both get the right answer, but only one of them knows the truth. Only one of them is thankful for it. Both are studying hard, but one is studying out of a love of God and man. And the other is out of some form of selfishness even if he's doing it for other people because his heart is wicked. But you have not so learned Christ. And this is a positive statement, and I want us to end with this. It's a conditional one. Paul says that you have learned Christ in a very good way. If you've really heard him, if you've really taken in what you've read in the Bible, what comes from the pulpit, what your parents are teaching you, um, then you have the truth. You actually have it now, Ephesians Church. You actually have it now, Montgomery County Church. It's not a long project. You have it. And don't miss the great encouragement here. The Shema form of education that, that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6 allows you to pull from this vast treasury of truth in Jesus. Using the Bible as your framework to understand everything. The Greeks were always seeking wisdom with no end in sight, but we already have the end. We're not always searching for something new. We are not wondering if our teacher is actually the one we'll be following the rest of our lives. And that's a good thing. No one um, is going to be able to be our principal, our dean, except Jesus Christ. And you wrote a book about this. And he placed it in our hands. We are at a tremendous advantage. One of my friends two years ago, uh, this was like when COVID was like the worst. We were just all, I mean, it's still really, really strong and we were just all tired of it. He said something I'll never forget. He said, it's a great time to be a Christian. And uh, and it's because of this ant- antithesis that we've been blessed with. It's because that even though the world is going a certain way, one of the things that we can do is we have a lot of freedom to educate our children and learn Christ. Learn it, the philosophy of Christ. Learn it in the construct of the family covenant. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, uh, thankful that you've given us this uh, this word from Ephesians. I pray that, uh, that what uh, I've spoken is true. You will profit it. I, pr- I pray that what I've spoken is false. You will not bring it to pass. Uh, Father, I, I do pray for us that we will humbly look to your word and be willing to do whatever it says. I also pray that you will give us the proper uh, Christian freedom to, uh, to allow for freedom in things that are not sinful. And uh, we praise your name for your covenant to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.